0: This, uh, as we begin, looking at Titus this morning, this could get me into a little bit of trouble with some of you, but in the spirit of honesty and frankness, here goes. I am not a fan of any Christian movies or TV shows. It's not that I don't like them or that I think that they're bad for you necessarily, although I do have opinions. It's that I personally have no interest in watching them. I've not seen most of them. I'm not going to. I don't expect Hollywood or even the Christian version of Hollywood, whatever that is, to get it right. And I know what some of you might be thinking, but you haven't seen, right, and I probably am not going to. Uh, it's a fad that will pass like all the others before it, and you know what? That's Okay. I'm not passing judgment on you for watching them. I'm saying that they're not my thing. And there are a couple of reasons for this. One is a song that was released in the heyday of Christian music, 1986. And it rings in my ears every time this comes up. Read the book, Don't Wait for the Movie, by Whiteheart. I'm guessing there are very few of you in here who have ever heard of the band Whiteheart. That's also okay. Back in the day, they were second in awesomeness only to Petra. And we don't count Striper in these lists. (laughs) But the second reason that I don't really particularly care for Christian movies is because at some point in the late 70s, early 80s, in a dark church basement somewhere in rural New Hampshire, I watched the movie A Thief in the Night. And I was scarred for life. This movie has been described by some as being traumatic for children and young teenagers who made up a significant part of its original audience. It's been criticized for using scare tactics to produce religious conversions or obedience to the standards of Christian or church life. It was used by pastors and youth pastors to try to scare kids, not only into heaven, but away from the world, to scare kids into obeying Jesus' commands. Today, if you look it up online, it's even referred to sometimes as a Christian horror film or a B-movie thriller. But that movie started a a whole genre of fictional rapture-tribulation books and, and movies that gained steam throughout the 1990s, and it had the effect of embedding in the minds of American evangelicals a sense of dread when it comes to Christ's return. When the average American evangelical Christian thinks of Christ's second coming, they often have a sense of, uneasiness and apprehension. So for some, every new development in technology is potentially the mark of the beast. There are Christians who live in a constant state of watching the news for the rise of the Antichrist. There are those who read the book of Revelation and they see images of helicopters and stinger missiles or nuclear war. But just between you and me today... That can't possibly be what the book is about, or it would have been completely irrelevant to any generation of Christian living before, say, World War II. But the book of Revelation is supposed to be an encouragement for the church to persevere. But I digress. But what about you? When you think of Christ's second coming, do you look expectantly, do you look longingly Or do you think to yourself, like I used to, not yet, I've got some more things to do. Paul's letter to Titus addresses this in in kind of an indirect way. Indirect in that he ties the, the second coming of Christ with his first. He connects the two and he clearly states that this is the heart of the gospel. So the book of Titus, is a pastoral manual of sorts. It's often called, along with uh, Paul's two letters to Timothy, it's often called a pastoral epistle. But as we have worked our way through this book, it has become more and more clear that this is not just for pastors, it's also for church members, because this is really a book that's, that's all about discipleship. We've defined discipleship in our study here of Titus, Using Jesus' words from the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19 and 20, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And then he promises, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And if we are to teach Christ's commands, as he says there, and by definition, we are to teach what accords with sound doctrine. Chapter 2, verse 1. And then, flowing from this teaching, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, the families of the church then will be sound in the faith. And remember, this is all cyclical, right? Think back to chapter 2 in those early verses. Younger men become older men, not just in age but also if the church is doing its job if discipleship is is active in the church they will also become they will also gain in maturity in stature and dignity and as a measure of the soundness of their faith love and steadfastness obviously the same is for the younger and older women Elders will be appointed from the ranks of the godly older men, those who are self-controlled, dignified, sober-minded. And then of those elders, at least one will be appointed as a teaching elder who will teach what accords with sound doctrine so as to continue this disciple-making cycle. And as that cycle works out and throughout the life of the church... We saw last time, a couple weeks ago, that the teaching elder, the pastoral example, is to always point to the gospel. But again, this is not just the concern of the elders, or even just the concern of the the families in the church, the, the mature older men, the mature older women. No one is excluded from living in such a way that points to Christ and to the good news of Jesus Christ. So, Paul then brings up a class of people that really probably made up much of the church slaves. And the conclusion that we drew last time was this no matter what category you find yourself in this morning, be it elder, older man, older woman. Younger woman or younger man, slave, if you are a Christian, see to it that all that you do is done to advance the mission of the church, the cause of Christ, to encourage sinners to repentance and salvation, always pointing toward the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul brings us right back there to the gospel of Jesus Christ this morning in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Let's read this and then we'll pray again. Titus two eleven. Father, it is our prayer that that we would be these people who are zealous for good works because because you have made us your treasured possession. And you have done that through Jesus Christ. Father, it is our prayer that as we are zealous for good works that we would be waiting for our blessed hope, the glorious return of our Savior. Fix our eyes upon Jesus this morning, Lord, and we pray in his name, amen. Now, if you are one who writes in your Bible, marks things in your Bible, and I would encourage you to do that if that would be helpful, I would encourage you to circle the word grace in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Then jump down to the word glory in verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The grace and the glory. This is our focus this morning because this is the focus of the gospel of Jesus Christ. First, we have seen His grace, and then we shall see His glory. Let's pay careful attention to this passage in a verse-by-verse manner, as we usually do. And as we do, we, we also need to remember a couple of things about this passage. The first is that this comes in the middle of a larger body of Scripture. So this is tied back to what came before. And as I've said a few times, Paul's writing here is cyclical. He keeps coming back, for example, to Titus. But as for you... So in many ways, these verses are complementary to Paul's instructions to the elders in chapter 1, verses 10 to 16... That these elders need to silence and rebuke the false teachers because of the damage they are doing to the families of the church. And Just as that false teaching produces followers who are, it says in those verses, detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work, so also, look at verse 11, 12, and 13 again. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's as if these verses, in reality, are a summary of the first two chapters of the book of Titus. But not only are these verses connected to the, the big picture of the entire letter... They're also, they really point straight at what had just been written, especially to the Christian slaves, just in the in the previous verses. And we know this, there's, a, there's an indicator in the text that we know that this is specific, uh, tied, excuse me, tied to the slaves, because Paul begins the paragraph with the word for. For the grace of God has appeared. Christian slaves are to show all good faith, the previous verses say. And they are to adorn the doctrine of God the Savior because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, because of what he has done. This is not only applicable, obviously, to first century Cretan slaves who have converted to Christianity, it is true for all of us who have been set free by Christ. We are to lead lives changed because the grace of God has appeared. We're to lead changed lives, lives that have been changed because the grace of God has appeared. Verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. This is clearly referring to Jesus' incarnation, is it not? It's referring to his first advent, the work that he did, both throughout his life on his cross and when he emerged from the empty tomb. Let me remind you of how John put it in the opening of his uh, gospel. John 1, 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father full of grace and truth. And then in verses 16 and 17 of John 1, he says this, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. grace, grace. Grace. We are to live changed lives because of the grace of God that has appeared in Jesus Christ and because we have seen him and believed in him. Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, he prophesied in Luke chapter 1, he said these words. He said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. We are to live lives changed because the grace of God has appeared in Christ Jesus. Paul explains it like this in in Romans chapter 6. He says, for sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law but under grace. And then a little bit later he writes this, but thanks be to God. That you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. Thanks be to God. This is because we've been set free from sin and made slaves of righteousness because the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. All people, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, old men and young women, rich and poor, and the list goes on and on. In Christ, we have been set free from sin and death. And this freedom, speaking of slaves, this freedom is so much bigger than the freedom given by, say, Abraham Lincoln, right? As important as the Emancipation Proclamation was in our nation's history, freedom or salvation in Christ is of infinite worth. It's of infinite importance. And this salvation, Paul says, has an effect. And the effect that it has is of training us. Look at verse 12. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. I should point out right here, before we continue, this should not be controversial. But of course, there is controversy surrounding everything. See, sometimes I think we get this order mixed up. Sometimes we expect, for example, unregenerate kids to act like Christians. When we don't, we show them scary Christian movies threatening them with the great tribulation or at least that's what was happening in the late 70s, back in my day. Of course, I'm being a little bit facetious on that part, but the point is this. Grace brings godliness. Grace brings godliness. It cannot be the other way around. Grace brings godliness. The gospel trains us. This is is not human effort alone. Now, we do have to work at our sanctification. We know this. We know that that we have to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. But that's only after grace has come. Only after Jesus has saved us. Absolutely, we need to be working at this. But the point is, we're not working at it alone. That's the point. That's what we see here in, in this training, in these two areas in verse 12. The first is that we are being trained to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. We're being trained to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. These are the things that that Paul speaks of, for example, in Ephesians chapter 4, when he tells us that we are to put them off. We're to put off. We are to renounce them, as he says here. In fact, Ephesians 4.22, he writes this. He says, Put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Put that off. Renounce your former manner of life. That means to to call sin, sin. It means to say no to it. It means to run from it, to stop doing it, to repent of it. Sometimes when, when someone comes to me for counseling, for example, and they tell me that they have been struggling with a specific sin, I will... I will encourage them to remember and recount their baptism. Sometimes, you know, we'll start with, how did you come to Christ? How were you saved? Sometimes I ask them specifically about their baptism. Because Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 4 says this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Baptism represents what he has done to our souls. He has immersed us in Christ. Don't forget those things. Do you understand that when the gospel trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, it means that not only are we free from the the guilt of sin, but we are also free from the power of sin as well. Because we've been raised to walk in newness of life. Totally new. Reborn. Because the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to you, Sin no longer has sway over you. You're no longer tied to your envy. You're no longer tied to your gossip, your lust, your greed. You're no longer tied to your sin. In Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, you are being trained to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. How? How is this ongoing in your life? Well, what does he say in Titus chapter 2? In fact, go back to the very first verse. This is where he starts. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And do you see where he goes from there? He goes to discipleship. Older men, older women, younger men, younger women, younger men. And this starts with the sound doctrine of God's word that you're being taught each and every Sunday. We are being trained through the teaching of sound doctrine to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to put off those things. I want to say this is the importance of a church that takes the preaching of God's Word seriously. I'm not trying to toot my own horn here, far from it. We need to be a church that is completely different from the world, and I praise God that we are. We need to be a church that is completely different from the world. Go ahead and get your entertainment elsewhere. We're being trained here to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And Paul continues that passage in Ephesians 4. Not only does he mention put off or renounce ungodliness and worldly passions here in Titus 2, but in Ephesians 4 he says, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. We are being trained by the good news of Jesus Christ to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age right now. These things are a summary of all of those character qualities throughout chapter 2, right? This is what you need to know right now. It is the grace of God that is training you to live like this. It is the grace of God that is training you to live like this. It is the grace of God that is training you to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, he says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He will be faithful to complete it. So does this mean that you can be passive in your sanctification? Does this mean that you can just kind of sit there and God will do the work of mortifying your sin? That if you sit there and scroll on your phone or whatever you do, kind of nod off, that God will somehow transform you into Christ's likeness Of course not. Notice it says, we are being trained to renounce and to live. Those are active verbs. In Ephesians 4, instead of using the image of training, he says that we are being equipped. You're being given the tools that you need. The reason that I am, that pastors are to teach what accords with sound doctrine, is not because you're just simply being educated in in the theology and in the Bible as a textbook, but because you are being trained to renounce ungodliness and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives now in the present age. And you're able to live like this because of God's grace. And we do this with an eager expectation. Of finally seeing Christ in his glory. This brings us back to where we started, right? Finally seeing Christ in his glory. Look at verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our blessed hope. Christ's return. His future appearing, it should loom large in our hearts and our minds. Yet instead of being a source of fear and dread, instead of being something that we we want to happen, but, you know, later, like really close to the end of our lives, like just before I have to experience the pain of death, this should be our blessed hope, our eager expectation that we look at longingly, For Christ to return. The second coming isn't something that we use to scare kids into obedience. It is our blessed hope. I'm going to keep using that phrase. Our blessed hope is that Christ will return and make all things new. Our blessed hope is that Christ will eliminate the sin and death that so plagues us each and every day. Our blessed hope is that we will see him in his glory, that he will return and judge the quick and the dead. Listen to the hope found in the promise of Revelation 7. Verses 15 to 18 says this, Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more. Neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat, for the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes." This is the same Christ who, in verse 14, gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. This Christ who saves us from our sin is our blessed hope. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, Peter says this, He says, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He saved us, and it is for his return that we wait. And of this blessed hope, one theologian writes this, he says, The the event of Christ's return then is the great centerpiece of biblical expectation for the future. It will signal the inauguration of God's eternal kingdom and the full redemption of his people. So put this all together. Verse 11, this salvation is past tense or salvation accomplished. It's the moment that you move from death to life. It is your justification. Verse 12 is salvation in the the present tense. It is your being conformed to the image of Christ. It is your sanctification, being made holy. It is your training in righteousness. And then verses 13 and 14 is salvation, future tense. It will be when we will be completely purified this is our glorification when we will see him as he is and be like him when we will look at him face to face the one who gave his life for us and it is this blessed hope that we await we are waiting we're waiting and working verse 12 says and the waiting is the hardest part because our eyes are too often fixed on earthly things Colossians chapter 3 says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. I love this. There's a quote by John Calvin in his commentary on Titus. He says this, He says, instead of contemplating the coming of our Lord Jesus, we turn away. The world holds us in its thrall, dazzles us with its seductions, and robs us of all sense. Let us learn then that the one true way to serve God is to pass swiftly through this world, conscious that God has placed us on earth on the condition that we journey as strangers and do not make our nest here. We're just passing through, and that's It's not a cliche. It's true. So what happens when our minds are truly set on things that are above? What happens when our minds are truly set on the things that are above? It brings hope. Because our minds are going to be fixed on our blessed hope. The first rule of a well-ordered Christian life is to understand that God has not ordained for us to live here forever, right? The first rule of a well-ordered Christian life is to understand that there is an eternity, that God has not set this up for us to live here forever in this state. We should live waiting for our blessed hope. We should live with an eager expectation of the appearing of the glory of Christ, But instead, too many of us live distressed by what we see on the news, distressed by what's going on in our families, and maybe even rightly so, at least to a certain extent. But sometimes we get overwhelmed with the distress, and we fix our eyes on things around us on earth and not on the things that are above. I want you to stop for just a moment, and I want you to think of Christ. Go ahead, just stop and think about Jesus for a second. Where is he at the moment? Where is Christ right now? Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 tells us this. Speaking of Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power and after making purification for sins he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus Christ is seated on his throne at the right hand of the Father and he is in his glory. His glory is hidden from the world at the moment. The world does not see him. The world does not know him. Now think of Moses and Aaron. Think of Moses and Aaron for a moment. A curious thing happened to them In Numbers chapter 16, verse 42, they were surrounded by a rebellious and unbelieving people, and suddenly the glory of God appeared, bringing judgment. Numbers 16, 42 says this, and when the congregation had assembled against Moses and against Aaron, they turned toward the tent of meeting, and behold, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. Something similar to that, Yet even greater than this will occur when Christ returns. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, we read this. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Now remember, Paul is instructing Titus to confront the worldliness of the Cretan church. He's instructing Titus to encourage the, the faithful disciples to pay careful attention to the gospel, to the, to the sound doctrine that produces a sound life. And he's reminding them in this passage that at Christ's first advent, grace appeared. Jesus' whole being is the embodiment of God's grace. And now we await glory. And this is the blessed hope here. This is not about us. It's about our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who is truly man, yet also truly God. And you want to know something that's kind of funny about all of this? Even that phrase, God and Savior? That term, God and Savior, is a phrase that pagans would use to refer to the Roman emperor. They would call him our great God and Savior, Caesar. But Paul, of course, subverts that claim and he ascribes to Jesus qualities that a man could only claim. He assigns to Christ the things that belong only to God. You see it there in verse 14. Look at the end of 13, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Redemption from sin and purifying a people for his own possession. That is a work that only God can do. Caesar can't do that. In fact, he's dead, and so isn't the one before him. And the one before him, they're dead. They don't uh, purify anybody from lawlessness. They don't set apart a people for their own possession. They're dead. These are godly promises. See if these promises in verse 14 sound familiar. Exodus 19, 5, God says this, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. Ezekiel 37, verse 23 says, They shall not defile themselves any more with their idols and their detestable things, or with any of their transgressions, but I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned, and I will cleanse them and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. It is no stretch that he incorporates language from the Mosaic covenant into the new covenant because Jesus is the final sacrifice for sins of his people. He gave himself. That brings us back to Hebrews 1.3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Why did he do all of this? The the grace and the glory that that we might be zealous for good works. I, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, I want to be clear about this, that the good works that we are to be zealous for isn't just simply necessarily doing nice things, like working in a soup kitchen or whatever, although those things can certainly be expressions of this. But rather, this is really pointing at the rest of Titus chapter 2. We are to be transformed. Listen to this promise from Ezekiel. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. From all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules, or as Jesus put it, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. As his people, we are to be zealous for the work of the kingdom, the work of transformation and discipleship. And so, yeah, that may involve volunteering at the pregnancy center. It may involve looking out for the needs of one another because that's the outworking of what Christ has done for us. We are to be zealous for the work of his kingdom. And so as we finish this morning, I want to point out three gospel notes for you. Three areas of assurance for uh, for those who are believers in Jesus Christ, just from verse 14, okay? Okay? Assurance, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, just from verse 14. The first is this, if you are his, you have been ransomed. You have been redeemed from all lawlessness. Jesus himself said in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You have been ransomed. You have been paid for. You've been bought with the blood of Christ. You're His. Second, not only have you been ransomed, but if you are His, you have been cleansed, purified by the blood of the Lamb. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14 puts it like this speaking of the sacrificial system under the Old Testament. Comparing it to Christ's work, he says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? That means that you are clean. Some of you need to, need to know that. If you have been purchased by Christ, by his shed blood, that means that you have been purified. You've been given his righteousness. It means that you're forgiven. It means that you're clean. I hope you understand that. You're clean. And then finally, if you are his, you are treasured. You're treasured. You're a people for his own possession, his treasured possession. And it is in his promised return that we can find our blessed hope. For the people of God, there is nothing to fear. Do you understand that? For the people of God, there is nothing to fear. Of course, God himself. But we do not have to stand before our God trembling that he might reject us that he might pour out his wrath upon us because Christ already took that. In fact, we can stand before our Father and the imagery that the New Testament uses is that we can crawl up into his lap and call him Abba, Father. That we can pray to him because he cares for us. We have nothing to fear. For the people of God, there is nothing to fear. Let's pray together. Father, as we consider these things, I pray that even though eschatology is difficult, even though it is intimidating and the end is um, intimidating to think about and there's so much disagreement among faithful brothers and sisters, Lord, that we would be people who await Christ's return as a blessed hope with eager longing and anticipation like John does at the end of the book of Revelation, come quickly, Lord. That we might not be selfish as we think about the return of Christ, but that we would consider, that we await. But until then, Lord, that we would be a people who are being transformed, that we are being trained to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives now. Father, it is our prayer that we would live like that, being trained, being being set apart and sanctified for you. Father, as we come to the table, we are reminded of Christ's work. Again, this work, the work of going to the cross as a sacrifice for our sin. So Lord, we proclaim his death until he comes. Father, again, if there are any here who do not know Jesus Christ, it is my earnest prayer that they would repent and believe, run from their sin, and run to Christ for salvation. We pray these things in His name. Amen.